Savior blue.
center of it all Jesus at the center of it all From beginning to the end It will always be It's always been you, Jesus 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 at the center of it all Jesus at the center of it all From beginning to the end It will always be It's always been you, Jesus Jesus Nothing else matters Nothing in this world will do Jesus, you're the center Everything revolves around you Jesus, you be the center of my life Jesus be the center of my life from beginning to the end it will always be it's always been you Jesus Jesus It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all center of your church Jesus be the center 
In the book of Acts this morning, chapter number 13, the book of Acts, chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, and as soon as you find it, look up this way, and I will know that you're uh, plugged in here with me, okay? Acts chapter 13, all right, won't you stand with me as we read from God's Word, Acts 13. Chapter 13, now in verse 1, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manion, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereinto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And then if you would turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 14, just flip the page there, go to the end of the chapter, verse 21, Acts 14 and 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, And had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every city and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, They came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the gospel or preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adelaide, and thence they sailed to Antioch from where where they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And there they abode a long time with the disciples. And you may be seated. Thank you. My subject this morning is apostolic Christianity. And that's sort of a mouthful, but I don't know of a better way to say it. Apostolic Christianity. Apostolic Christianity is, as the name implies, the Christianity of the apostles. It was the Christianity of the first century. It was primitive Christianity, if you want to say it like that. It certainly is not modern-day Christianity, as you will see as we contrast it here in the Scripture. D.L. Moody was the most famous evangelist of his day who lived uh, 
oh, now 150 years ago. D.L. Moody was, had been invited by a group of pastors to come to a certain city up in, uh, I think, in Michigan, Ohio area. And they were going to have a citywide meeting, and all the pastors had gotten together, and they were describing, or they were trying to settle the details of the meeting. And one pastor stood up, and he said, you know, I just don't feel real comfortable having this moody fella. I've heard about him. I've read his sermons. And he said, "Um, I'll be honest with you, gentlemen. If Moody comes here, he's going to set the churches back a hundred years. And when another pastor stood up and he said, let me tell you something, brother. If he's only going to set it back a hundred years, I'm not interested in having the meeting either. I want somebody who will set it back 2,000 years. And that's exactly what apostolic Christianity is about. It's the Christianity of 2,000 years ago that we have gotten, in my opinion, very, very, very far away from. In chapter 13 and verse number 2 there, we read the passage, but look at the last phrase. It says there that the Holy Ghost had said to the church there, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereinto I have called them. So I want you to understand that what Saul, later Paul, Saul and Barnabas, his assistant, were doing was approved of the Lord. In fact, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, working through that church, had called them and given them a specific and definite mandate for what they were doing. They had a stated purpose. Paul and Barnabas had a mission, if you will. They knew exactly what God had called them to do, and they went about doing it. Now, the rest of chapter 13 here, I didn't read it because it's a long chapter. We would not have had time. But all of chapter 13 and all of chapter 14, we refer to that as Paul's first missionary journey. In the maps in the back of your Bible, which don't go to them right now, but if you want to one day follow them, you can just go from place to place and see the missionary journey and where they stopped and what they did in each of these locales. And they went there with this mandate from heaven, a mandate, a mission given them a call of the Holy Spirit to to, uh, Saul and to Barnabas. And when they went, Christianity swept across the Roman Empire like a prairie fire. I mean, it caught and it began to grow and flame like you and I could not imagine. With the Word of God in their mouth and with the Spirit of God in their souls and operating through them, these men began to evangelize and to do missionary work. They started in Antioch, chapter 13 and verse 1 there. Their message was clear. They went and they preached Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, according to verse 38 and 39. And it was a pattern that followed them in this missionary work. Now, here's the pattern. They would go into a town. They would preach the gospel. They would win people to the Lord. They would begin to teach and train those people, and then they would go to jail. It was just that simple. 
And you read this, and this is the pattern of apostolic Christianity. Somebody said Paul would go to, to a town, and he'd say to the people that live there, now, where could we get people together and have a church service? And then he would say to them, now, after the church service, where's the jail? I might as well find out now because I know I'm going there. And that was the way of apostolic Christianity. So the apostle Paul would go in with Barnabas, his sidekick, and they would gather people together. They would go into the synagogue or to a public square. They would begin to preach, open-air preaching, if you will. And then they would win people to the Lord, and multitudes of people were getting saved. And then guess what would happen next? The persecution would come, and they were thrown in jail, and they were beaten and they were and they faced mobs and suffering and blood now do you know any christianity like that today well not much in our part of the woods but i'll tell you what there are places on the earth where that pattern is exactly being carried out they spread the gospel people are saved and then the persecution comes down upon them but this is the pattern in verse 13 they went from antioch to a little place called perga and then in verse 14, they went to a place called Antioch of Pisidia. And then they went in verse 51 to a place called Iconium. And then they went to a place called Lystra. And always the pattern is the same. Now, never forget this. This is Bible Christianity, not American Christianity. They preach the gospel. People get saved. Then they get thrown in jail. They get persecuted. They get beaten. They face the mobs. It's not like what you and I think when we use the word Christian today. This apostolic Christianity, let me try to describe it for you. I want you to get a hold of it because it's powerful Christianity. Powerful Christianity. It is courageous. It has deep convictions. It doesn't fear any man on the face of the earth. Ladies, forgive me. This Christianity is masculine Christianity. This is strong Christianity. This is Christianity with testosterone, excuse me. This is not this little weak, insipid, compromising, limp-wristed type of Christianity that we're familiar with for the most part in our country, this bland, innocuous, soft Christianity. This is real man's Christianity. I'm met with silence. You men, you're afraid to say amen right there. You're afraid. You've already been dug in the ribs, haven't you? This is masculine Christianity. This, this is Christianity without fear. This is not intimidated Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity I can get excited about. Apostolic Christianity, we call it. Ronald Reagan said, I don't speak about the issues of the day in pale pastels. I speak about the issues in bold colors of black and white. You know what? Apostolic Christianity was Christianity in bold colors, not in pale pastels. It had to be to face the lions and the mobs of the day. The idea that we ought to be so cautious and so intimidated and so politically correct today, I, I can't get into that. It blows my mind. 
a Sunday school teacher told me, you know what, the impression I'm getting from my class pastor is that we should not witness to anybody if there's any chance of them being offended by the gospel. I can't believe that. that that's, that's not Christianity of a Bible variety, ladies and gentlemen. That's a Christianity we made up in our own mind, modeling it on the culture of the day. No. We spread the gospel, and we leave it up to the Lord what the results are going to be. But the idea that we shouldn't witness because somebody might be offended is ludicrous. It's the opposite of apostolic Christianity. You know, I've used this before, but it so illustrates it. Some fellow described his church like this. He said, you know what our church is like? We have a mild-mannered man who stands up in front of a group of mild-mannered people telling them to be more mild-mannered. And that just about describes much of what we call Christianity today. So when you think of apostolic Christianity, don't think of it as being what you look around you and see in much of our culture today. And I want to give you four characteristics of it this morning if you're taking notes with me. Number one, apostolic Christianity confronted evil with the truth of God's Word and with conviction. Apostolic Christianity confronted the evil of the day with truth and with conviction. It confronted evil. It confronted wickedness, heathenism, wrongdoing. It it confronted them with moral clarity. It, It faced them and confronted them with deep convictions of right and wrong. In fact, that's the whole story of the Bible. What is the story of the Bible? If I could write it in one sentence, I'd probably say uh, the, the story of the Bible is people who confronted evil with truth and conviction. We read about a young man named Joseph. He goes to work in the home of a very prominent general. And the man's wife gets her eyes upon young Joseph And she seeks to seduce him. And what does he do? He confronts her. He confronts her knowing that there's going to be persecution. He ends up in an Egyptian jail cell for 12 years. He's probably thinking, my life is ruined and wasted. He doesn't understand that God has his eye on him for what he's done and that he's going to catapult him clear over and put him in in the uh, Pharaoh's uh, office and he's going to end up being number two man in the whole country in, in just another few, few years. You see, it's the story of somebody who had the courage to confront evil with the truth and with conviction. We have the story of Daniel. Daniel, eat the king's food. He says, I can't eat it. It will defile me. We are Jewish people. We have our own dietary standards. And so his life was endangered. But God delivered him ultimately. And then we have him one day, they come and say, if you pray to any other God than the God of heaven, or than the the king, rather, of of the uh, Persians, if you pray to any other God for the next 30 days, then you'll be thrown in the lion's den. And what does Daniel do? He confronts that evil. He confronts it with 
conviction. He's not some wimpy guy. Do you know what the Bible even says? It drops a little phrase in there. He goes into his room and he opens his windows. He put it right in their face. And they put him in the lion's den. And the lions ran over in the corner because the presence of God was so powerful in his life. God delivered him. You wouldn't have that wonderful story that you just read it to your kids like it's a a fairy tale or something, but it's a true story. It's an account of a man who confronted all the evil of a superpower of his day, and he was victorious in the confrontation. You have the story of Esther, who has now been chosen as the new queen, and then there's this plot this anti-Semitic plot that keeps on coming around a few, every few years like we're having today. And in this anti-Semitic plot, there's this plan to destroy her people, the Jewish people. And her uncle comes and says, you're the only one who can speak to the king about this. Will you speak to the king? And she goes to the king and she speaks to him and hears her words, if I perish, I perish. But it doesn't matter because I will speak the truth to power. Because evil must be confronted. And I go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're at the time of year to celebrate what he did for us on the cross. And and, and never forget that at the cross, all the evil of all of history was placed upon the shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he was punished by God Almighty for our sins, and evil was defeated. He walked out of that tomb three days later, ladies and gentlemen. It's the story. Christianity is the story of the confrontation of righteousness and evil and not a fear of having convictions about it. How unlike so much of what we have today. The very nature of evil is that if somebody doesn't confront it, it will grow and it will take everything down with it. It's the very nature of evil to grow until it's confronted and and until it's dealt with and destroyed. Jesus gave us a parable about that. He gave us the parable of a woman making bread, and she takes leaven and puts it into the dough. And then he says, in a few minutes, the leaven has spread throughout the whole lump of dough. And he said, so is evil. So is sin. And it comes in and it spreads. And over in the Middle East a few months ago or a couple, only maybe two years ago, a group of very evil people get together and form an organization they call it ISIS. And it's spreading and it's metastasizing And it will continue until somebody has the courage to take it on and face it with conviction and face it with righteousness. That's the history of evil. Hitler, somebody had to confront him. Communism, somebody had to confront him. Islamic radicalism, somebody will have to confront it. It will not go away. It is the nature of evil to spread. And it's the nature of evil in our culture to spread. And apostolic Christianity confronted evil with truth and convictions from God's Word. Now, when I say that, don't read it, don't say what, don't think what I'm not saying. Because 
the apostles did not confront evil with violence. They confronted evil with truth. They confronted evil with truth. Boy, I saw an example of that recently, and I just had to tell you about it. About six weeks ago, I don't know how this could have ever happened, but in Washington, they were planning the National Prayer Breakfast, and they invited Daryl Waldrop, a NASCAR racing driver, now a commentator. Uh, they asked him to share his Christian testimony with the thousands of people gathered there. And I heard about it, and I, I, read, I read this. Somebody gave me this, and I read it. And then I was so interested in it, I YouTubed it up, and I watched the whole thing. It's about 26 or 8 minutes. It's one of the most wonderful testimonies I've ever seen. And he describes himself as a grease monkey, just a, you know, a mechanic who became a NASCAR race driver and became famous. But can you imagine this? Here's the table here. And right over here is the President of the United States, and here's Michelle, his wife, and all these dignitaries from the cabinet. And three or four more seats down sits the Dalai Lama. Do you know who the Dalai Lama is? Oh, everybody's probably real excited about him. But he's that guy who wears that sheet around him and has his head shaved. And he's from Tibet, and he is the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism, which nobody says this in the media. Do you understand what Tibetan Buddhism is? It's the worship of spirits. So we got an occultist, an international occultist, and the President of the United States, and all the cabinet, and about 90% of the members of Congress and Senator there. Whole power. I mean, the whole wall's vibrating. And oh, have I prayed for people who would do this. So Walter Panaskar, Hall of Fame recipient with 84 wins, spoke about the importance of coming to Christ and becoming a new creature to the over 4,000 attendees. He spent most of the time sharing his story of how God changed his life from being a man who struggled with pride and alcoholism to a man now who lives for Christ and not himself. He said, people around me said I was brash, ruthless, pushy, cocky, conceited, aloof, boastful, arrogant, and right down annoying. And he said, I've got to tell you, these were the people that liked me. You ought to hear what the others said about me. And then he said, but I had a serious car crash during the 1983 Daytona 500. It was the turning point for my life. When I finally came to, <clears throat> I realized that I could have been killed that day. What if I'd lost my life? Right there that day at Daytona, what would I have done? Would I have gone to heaven or would I have gone to hell? And I see the reaction of all the power people, the president and his wife and the Dalai Lama, as they look at each other and their eyes roll, hell? We never heard it used like that before, a place. We always hear it when, you, when people are unhappy with something. But this guy's talking about, he's talking like some caveman. He's talking like some fundamentalist from the southeast. This guy's a religious extremist. He's talking about a place. He must believe this stuff that there's a place with fire in it. He said, I thought I was a pretty good guy. But, folks, let me tell you something. Good guys go to hell. Oh, wouldn't you like to have been in that room? 
<laughs> if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't have a relationship with him, if he's not the master of your life, if you've never gotten on your knees and asked him to forgive you of your sins, and you're just a pretty good guy or a pretty good gal, you're going to go to hell. Think about that. And I said, praise God. I was high-fiving my computer. Somebody had the courage to testify the truth to the power brokers of this whole world, to remind them that it doesn't matter what position you have. You better know Jesus Christ. After the incident, he said, I started going to church, and my pastor, Cortez Cooper, began ministering to me. I got down on my knees, and Dr. Cooper and Stevie, my wife, and I prayed that the Lord would come into my life and forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and Savior. I want to tell you, folks, that was the greatest day of my life. That changed everything. Man, what a testimony. But you know what? It's not just the testimony that, that, that I, I didn't do that because he gave the testimony because he didn't say anything there you don't know 10,000 times over. I get, but I want to share it with you because here's the point. He confronted evil with the truth of God's Word. America is so decadent today. You know that. So decadent. On my watch, while I've been pastoring, we have killed 55 million unborn children in their mother's womb. On my watch and on your watch. Why isn't there an outcry? Somewhere along the line, we bought into the lie that Christians are just supposed to be nice people. And we lost our militancy and our courage. We were afraid the world would think evil or speak evil of us. We wanted social acceptance in our community more than we wanted to please Jesus Christ. And we've watched our entertainment business be corrupted, our films, our music, our TV. We've watched Wall Street be corrupted, the business community. We've watched our educational system be corrupted to teach our children a system of values antithetical to the founding of the nation and the scriptures themselves and what we believe in our homes. We've watched every institution become corrupted, our government especially. This is Time Magazine, January the 26th, I believe, 2015, right there, three and a half pages, inside the evangelical war over gay marriage. Why would there be a war inside the evangelical community when the Bible is so very, very, very clear? Why would there even be a discussion? 
There's nothing to discuss. It doesn't mean we hate anybody. We're not haters. But we had our faith. We had our Bible for 2,000 years before this thing ever came up. Are we supposed to all say, we've been wrong for 2,000 years? Is the inspired Word of God wrong? There are 80 million evangelical Christians in America, supposed, quote. Of the 80 million, only 40 million of them are even bothered, have even bothered to register to vote. Only half of them. And of the half that have registered, only 20 million of them voted in the last presidential election. By default, we've said, evil can take over and it isn't worth our time to go to the poll and even vote for people. And you know what? I vote all the time for people I don't like and who do not have my values, but I vote for the lesser of the evil trying to confront the worst and hold it back. How could this be? I can tell you how it can be. Very simply, we don't believe what we say we believe. We just don't really believe it when it comes time to put it into practice. Apostolic Christianity confronted evil with the truth of God's Word and convictions. Number two, apostolic Christianity refused to compromise truth. It refused to compromise the truth. The Romans would conquer a territory in those days, if you know your history. And they allowed the people to keep their religion, their culture, their music, their language. All they wanted to do is have control of them politically and economically. And so to unify all the different nations, because there were probably 50 different nations represented in the empire, they built a big building in Rome called the Pantheon. Pan, all, Theon, God, a building for all gods. The first ecumenical building in history. In the building, they put little niches, little shelves, And every time they conquered a people, they would invite the people, come and put your God up there on the shelf. And so this is the house of all gods. And so anybody from any of these conquered countries can come in and find the representative of their own religion. And the Christians came into being. And the Romans said, Christians, come and put a bust of Jesus Christ up here. Let him be representative. A bust of Christ would represent the Christian faith now that's sweeping across the empire. And the Christians said, no, we're not going to put our our Lord there. Why are you not going to put him there? Because he's not one of the gods. He is God. He's not one of, he is the. And we won't desecrate him. He's king of kings and lord of lords. We won't lower him to making him one of the boys on the God shelf. And they paid for it. 
John, the apostle who wrote the book of John and 1 John and Revelation, had a student. He mentored a man who we now know by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was John's student for about seven or eight years during his 20s. And Polycarp is now an old man. And the persecutions have begun. And the Romans are so desperate to get a hold of Polycarp because of his his influence that they send a representative and they torture the people that are his friends until they find out where he is. And they discover that Polycarp is hiding in a farmhouse near Smyrna in what is today modern-day Turkey. And so they find Polycarp and several soldiers pull up to his door and go in the house, the farmhouse where he's staying. When they do, they meet the old man, stooped now with age, but a godly, godly countenance. He says to them, I welcome you. As a Christian, I know why you're here, but I'm to be kind to you. He offers them food. He offers them drink, something to drink. And then he says to them, would you give me an hour to pray before we have to go? And they said, yes. And they give him an hour, and then it's another hour. And finally they say, sir, we have to go. So they get him in their chariot, and they ride him. And on the way to the town of Smyrna, there they meet a magistrate who's coming to check on them and find out where they are. Well, they The magistrate invites Polycarp to come up and get in his chariot and talk to him. He says, Polycarp, renounce Jesus Christ. Offer to the gods and your life will be saved. You're you're too old to go through this. And Polycarp says, I can't do that. The account says by an eyewitness, by the way, that they pushed Polycarp out of the cart And he skinned his leg and cut him so badly when the fall that his leg is bleeding rather profusely. He gets back in the other chariot and they go into town. And as they enter the amphitheater and the arena, he gets down and he says, I'll walk. And he limps because his leg is hurting. He's bleeding and he's old. And he limps into the middle of the arena And they take his hands and begin to tie him to a stake. They pile up the wood around him that will light the fire. The governor sits on the front row, and the governor says, Polycarp, announce Christ. Make an offering to the gods, and your life will be saved. You can go free. And his answer will live forever. I wrote it down. Eighty and six years I have served him. He has never done me any injury. How then can I deny my king and my savior? And every ear in that arena heard it. Eighty-six years I served him. He's never done anything but good for me. I'm not going to deny my king now. Light the fire. They lit it. The flames came up around him. And the eyewitness says, as the flames consumed him, finally, 
even the hard-hearted soldier who was the one who put the wounded lions and tigers out of their misery in the arena in those cruel games, took his sword, and out of compassion, if you will, of a warped type, rammed the sword through the chest of Polycarp, and he died. Apostolic Christianity. Serious Christianity. Not the Americanized version. The Bible version. I got four points. I'm at two. I usually do a better job than this, but I got carried away. Point three is apostolic Christianity was a savor of life and death. Write this verse down. Give me just a moment here. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, Paul says, as I went preaching through these cities and these people were listening to the gospel to half of them, or to some of them, Christianity was a savor of life. Second Corinthians 2.15. Savor. That's an odor, a smell, an aroma. As I was preaching, people listened to the gospel, and it was like a sweet aroma. It smelled like life, hope the very presence of God, forgiveness of sins. But then he said to others, to those who rejected us and persecuted us, it was the savor of death. The savor of death, the odor of death. With one, it was a sweet aroma. To another, it smelled like the body of a dead person. Everybody rejected it or they accepted it, but nobody was neutral. It was in bold colors, no pastels. Apostolic Christianity. And this morning, you've either accepted it or you have rejected it. To you, it's the savor of life. It's hope. It's what life is about, the very presence of God in the gospel. We sung about it like a rose crushed. That Jesus did so much for us. But we can be lulled into sleep by this culture and become cultural Christians, people who identify themselves as Christians but really have no personal relationship with the Lord. Which are you? The old invitation song says, neutral you cannot be. Neutral you can't be. And you can't. You say, I'll be neutral. No, to be neutral is to reject. You must decide for Jesus. There's no gray. It's for him or it's against him. And our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord, 
your master if you've never sincerely and genuinely repented of your sins? If you've never seen yourself as without hope, if you've never seen yourself as helpless to save yourself, if you're not sure that you're trusting and only trusting Him, I want you to come when I give the invitation. When I give the invitation to come, I'm not necessarily giving an invitation for you to join the church. I'm first giving an invitation for you to come to Christ and be saved. And I, I know today when a congregation this size are a number of people, and in your heart of hearts, you know, you know. Maybe you're a church member. Maybe you have attended church throughout your life. But really, you have never had that life-transforming experience that Daryl Waldrop talked about. He says, it was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life, more than any and all of those 84 NASCAR victories. He's excited about it. He's willing to speak what is very unpopular to the Dalai Lama, the president, the members of Congress and Senate, the power brokers of the United States, and not flinch, not back up an inch. He wasn't worried about who liked it and who didn't. He spoke truth to power. And my friend today, I don't want you to go through life playing Christian, which is what so much modern Christianity tempts us to do. Our culture will accept you as being a Christian. That's your faith, as they like to say. They'll accept that as long as you don't confront the evil and trust in Jesus Christ and talk about it to people. But you know in your heart if you're really saved or not. And if you're not, I want you to come right now. And then there's people here, perhaps, that someone led you to the Lord this week. And you, were, you, you prayed to receive Christ, and you meant it. And now you're not ashamed of that. You'd like to profess Him publicly, as Jesus told us to do, by the way. And the way we do it here is people, we just invite people to walk down the aisle. And I take their hand, and they stand here at the front. We get a card and some information. We pray with you, answer your questions. And we'd invite you to come. Even the Father who created all that is, and we believe the universe and all therein is His as a loving heavenly. Father, He yearned to save us all, to lift us from the fall. We believe, we believe in Jesus, the Father. Existing, uncreated, before time had begun, 
a sacrifice for sin. He died, then rose again to ransom sinful men. We believe, we believe in the Spirit who makes believers one. Our hearts are filled with His presence. The Comforter has come. God's kingdom unfolds in His plan, unhindered by quarrels of man. His church upheld by His hand. We believe all the earth be removed and time. one remains our faith is not subject to seasons of man with our fathers we proclaim we believe our Lord will come as he said the land and the seas will give up their dead God's for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request in payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504. Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message, and please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org. We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m. and the service begins immediately following at 10.30. Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week. and We hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. Water.